and welcome to the first episode of the Totally Football Show Presents Zonal Marking. This is a six-part summer series to coincide with the release of Zonal Marking, The Making of Modern European Football, a book written by one of our panellists, Michael Cox. Hello. Hi, Ian. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. These are exciting times, aren't they? We usually would think about shutting down for summer, but, but not this time. Yeah, bonus content for all our listeners. Bonus content. Everyone loves bonus content. Um, there's another five of these coming over the summer. We'll be joined by a familiar face from the Totally Football Show every week, every Thursday, to take a look at a classic European side from the last 25 years. There will be appearances from James Horncastle, Julien Laurent, Alvaro Romeo, Raphael Honigstein, all coming up later in the series. But today, we're joined by Tom Williams. Hello. Hello, Ian. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? These are exciting times, aren't they? Aren't they just? Yeah. Let's look back at previous exciting times, because that's very much the purpose of the book, Michael. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's uh, essentially a a kind of history of uh, modern European football over the last 25, 30 years, um, taking each major European country in turn. So... Holland, Italy, France, Portugal, Spain, Germany, and then England, and looking at the style of each country's, you know, what Spanish football is, what Italian football is, why there's differences in the culture and the way that they play the game. So, yeah, we're going to look at that through the prism of a great side for each. And I'm particularly looking forward to you finding another five different ways of doing that spiel as we go through to make (laughs) it different every time. Uh, Tom, Michael is not the only person who's written a book because you've written one too called Do You Speak Football? uh, about football phrases from across the world. We're on the Dutch today. You got anything in Dutch? Yeah, the Dutch section of my book is possibly my favourite bit of the whole book. I think that the Dutch do have a very unique, quite idiosyncratic way of thinking and talking about football. So my Dutch phrase or my Dutch term is chocoladebeen, meaning chocolate leg. And that is a term for a player's weaker foot. So you might refer to Arjen Robben's right foot as his chocoladebeen. The inference being, I think, that it's liable to melt um, when uh, you know when the pressure's on. I remember Robin van Persie using that in English actually once and being completely confused because <laughs> we just say standing leg, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. or just your weaker. I don't think we have like a, a particularly inventive name for it. It works for me. Challenge now is uh, in the 2019-20 season of the Totally Football Show. I expect to hear that at least four times. Uh, the reason I've asked for a Dutch phrase is that today we're looking at Ajax. Not the class of 2019, of course, but the generation that won the European Cup back in 1995. Um, This is a team I remember seeing in the embryonic days of getting European football and British telly. You used to get clips of them coming through on Eurosport, on Euro goals, and you'd see them as every week went past, developing and becoming better and better, and you're thinking, bloody hell, this lot are good. And they really were. What was it that made them so good, Michael? I'd say three factors. One, the fact that so many players came through the youth system and obviously went on to bigger and better things. Secondly, the fact that they played incredibly open, expansive football that came just after a period of Italian dominance where the play was more defensive, more cautious, more tactical. Ajax really were, were taking the game to the opposition each week. And third, because it was the great Ajax name, which um, after a period of, I guess, 10 or 15 years where they weren't really competing too much in uh, European competition you know they came to the fore again it was almost like the the second coming of uh, the total football of the 1970s I'm just looking at the squad list here it's incredible you've got Edwin van der Sar Frank Rijkaard the De Burr brothers Edgar Davids Clarence Seydorf Mark Overmars Yari Littmanen and Patrick Cliver I mean that is a pretty special team Tom 
Yeah, uh, an incredible group of players. Um, you know, as Michael was saying, I think there were seven homegrown players uh, involved in that that '95 Champions League final win. Um, and yeah, you look at the list of names there, and okay, you know, Littman and coming in from from Finland, but the Dutch players in that squad, it was an absolute who's who for that era in European football. And if you were to pick a Dutch team of the past thirty years, you would start with that sort of spinal column and you might only need to add two or three players I mean it was that strong a group well there's a there's a good example actually Yari Lipman was asked to do his perfect 11 for 442 magazine which is a really good feature and apparently he spent a couple of days thinking about it and he played with like Figo and Rivaldo and Guardiola and Steven Gerrard and after two days just came back and named the IX95 <laughs> side <laughs> Are we sure that he didn't just forget about that and just like, have two minutes left? Right that that would oh, probably be easier. Yeah, yeah. Right, I'll go for that. <laughs> I mean, are there any other players in Dutch football at that time who could break into that team? Any rival players from any rival I mean, team? You'd put Burkamp in, I think. But that Ajax team was the foundation for the Dutch team that you know that went on to reach the semi-finals at, at the '98 World Cup. And yeah, there aren't too many big names who who didn't either play for that specific Ajax team or at least pass through the, the youth system there. Basically got everyone. Michael, if I was trying to replicate this team, say, on a popular football management computer game, what kind of formation, what kind of style, what, what are they? Well, at the time, it was almost completely unheard of to most people who watched uh, European football. It was, I guess, a 3-4-3 with a diamond midfield, which meant you had... Frank Rijkaard sitting in front of the defence and Yari Lippmann and behind the front three. But it's quite interesting because this, um, you know, this kind of developed from the total football of the 1970s. And when the Dutch national side played a very similar formation at Euro 92, looking at the foreign journalist attempts to explain this formation through numbers was fantastic. Some of them thought it was 4-3-3, some of them thought it was 3-4-3, and some of them thought it was 3-3-4 with Lippmann and or in this Ajax iteration with Lippmann and almost as a forward. Um, it was Dennis Burkamp for the Dutch national side, of course. And that was, again, a complete contrast to the, you know, some of the systems we saw in Italian football, you know, the Scandinavian 4-4-2. It was a completely different approach to space, I guess, which is what Dutch football is all about. This was one reason why they were so fascinating to watch, because at the time in England, you've got Manchester United dominating very much a sort of 4-4-2. Um, Liverpool are only just starting to play with a back three, but mostly it's quite formulaic. And then you've got this space age super quick super technical team that you sat there happily watching on euro goals blowing everyone away perhaps the the key protagonist in all of this was uh, louis van gaal um there's a number of themes and threads in your book that sort of cut across from one chapter to another he's very definitely one of them yeah i must say of all the characters i ended up researching he was maybe the most enjoyable because he had um a really fascinating start to his career. Ajax youth player who never really made it in the first team, in part because he was overshadowed by Cruyff, who, of course, was a superstar. What I didn't realise about him was the extent to which he basically juggled his playing career and teaching for a really long period, was working as a teacher in schools. Um, and that carried over into the start of his coaching career as well. And, of course, later on, after this you know, great experience with Ajax, he was a very key part of bringing through the likes of Xavi and Iniesta at Barcelona. And then later he goes on to to do a kind of similar job in setting the tone for, for Bayern's dominance and, and the, you know, so many of those German youth products who came through at Bayern. So he's, you know, over a period of about 25 years, he was, I would say, as influential as anyone in uh, the development of modern European football. Can you imagine getting him as a supply teacher? <laughs> absolutely terrible. I can't, I genuinely can't think of another football manager who would unsettle me that much. Louis van Gaal's army! <laughs> Louis van Gaal's army! 
apparently he worked in a kind of inner city school with a lot of um basically difficult pupils and it was widely agreed that he basically treated his players as as school kids <laughs> um you know in complete contrast to Cruyff who was a lot more laissez-faire then he came to England, didn't he, Tom? And you, you were uh, covering quite a lot of Manchester United games when he was there. Yeah, and he was he was really fun, Van Gaal. I mean, you always knew that you'd get something from a Van Gaal press conference, that very confrontational style he'd had. I remember once asking him a question about the penalty-taking hierarchy at United because Rooney had been taken off penalties and there'd been a penalty awarded in a game and there seemed to have been a bit of confusion about who was going to take it. And I'd asked him a question about whether you know, he'd made that hierarchy clear to his players beforehand. And just that I don't think I've ever seen a manager react with such a look of indignation. He sort of, you know, dismissed the question quite disdainfully, but then kept sort of like eyeballing me as, as the press conference <laughs> went on. Um, so, yeah, you, you know, you always knew that you were, you know, you were in for a, an entertaining 15, 20 minutes when, when Van Gaal was there. And I think, yeah, you, you look back at the way that his time at United came to an end and he did end up looking a little bit like yesterday's man. And I think one of the issues that Van Gaal had, and you could perhaps compare him almost to Jose Mourinho in a way, is that his methods worked very well with players of a certain generation and didn't try translate so well with players of a younger generation and his slightly manic insistence on this very kind of robotic manner of circulating the ball wasn't something that appealed to to young players who were used to being granted a greater degree of freedom by their managers whereas you go back to that that first great Ajax team and I think because players of that generation were less liable to openly challenge a manager or pick holes in what they were doing. They did just take on his commands. And ultimately what what you had with Ajax was this incredible flourishing of a very sort of mechanised vision of the game that Van Gaal had drilled into them and that they'd all sort of unthinkingly taken on board. And And yeah, and I think it's no surprise that that, remained to the high point of his career over the decades that followed because it was a quite unique set of circumstances that allowed him to achieve what he he did with those players at that time. Michael, we've touched briefly on the relationship between Van Gaal and, and Cruyff. I guess quite a few people won't know that Van Gaal was, was there as a player. Yeah, um, he never, well, he never made a single appearance for Ajax and played as, I gather, a very sluggish, immobile uh, central midfield playmaker for uh, some some lower sides in Holland, and uh, and yeah, their their rivalry really continued throughout their careers. Of course, in in recent years, they had this almost political struggle at Ajax when the board tried to appoint Van Hal and Cruyff objected, and it ended up in this big court case. But I think it was most interesting at this period where basically the two most revered sides in Europe are Van Hal's Ajax and Cruyff's Barcelona, and you've got this fantastic. Almost difference in philosophy in one sense because in terms of formations and shape and the general approach to the game they both basically follow the Ajax way but Cruyff gives his individuals you know an incredible amount of freedom and Van Howe is this very strict ex-school teacher who basically wants his players to follow instructions and they're, they're not really there with the maybe exception of Litmanen they're not there to kind of express themselves they're there to do a job what is this the the Ajax thread that that connects the two of them? What's the consistency between the two styles? This Ajax way. I think the use of space, which of course is you know what we always hear that total football is about. I think it's easy to kind of look back at those teams and think maybe they're not so different to the way football is played now. But that's the whole point. They were so influential, and you know you see certain things. The use of a sweeper keeper like 
van der Sar, really high defensive line. And I think more than anything else, the real focus upon width on both sides, you know, proper wingers who get to the touchdown and cross, which had kind of died out until the last couple of years when Guardiola at Manchester City with Sterling and Sané plays, uh, you know, two wingers going in behind and combining, which is maybe something he borrowed from Van Gaal. And Van Gaal probably wouldn't like this notion, but to, to what extent was he following Cruyff's philosophy? Yeah, I think at the start of his career, he was a lot more open about that. Um, he would say it's the Ajax way. A lot of people would say the Ajax way was the Cruyff way. And then over the course of their careers, they gradually fell out more and more. And it was quite fun going through the 90s and just finding them slagging each other off through the press. There's there's one bit, I can't remember the two teams, but there's one bit where Cruyff is asked which two sides in Europe he admires the most, apart from Barcelona. And he chooses, one was Sampdoria, I can't remember who the other one is, but they're the two sides have knocked out Van Gaal's Ajax from Europe in the last two years. <laughs> That's really petty. Yeah, it's fantastic stuff. Well, I tell you what, this zonal marking book is a fantastic read. But it's not the only thing out there with which you can get your clever on. Take, for example, The Economist. Now, you might think that The Economist only concerns itself with economics, finance, but you'd be wrong. It covers loads of topics across politics, business, science, technology, arts, the environment. There's even a bit of sport in there, too. I've been reading all about how English clubs have reconquered Europe. Well, I mean, not all of them. No, not Arsenal. I've also found a piece about a new art exhibition themed on the future of food with two central installations, a toilet made of manure and cheese grown from pubic hair. Mmm, nice. The Economist is the smart guide to the forces changing your world. So if you're the sort of person who never stops asking questions, get your free copy now by texting the word FOOTBALL to 78070. That's FOOTBALL to 78070. Let's work through this team in much more detail now. Let's see if we can put an 11 together. Um, in goal, it is Van der Sar, and we touched upon the, the fact that he was very mobile, very much a sweeper-keeper. Uh, in terms of European goalkeepers in the last 25 years, where does he rank? I think in terms of being influential, he's probably number one. I mean, it's interesting, if you were to speak to someone who, who maybe only saw the tail end of his career when he was a relatively kind of standard goalkeeper at Manchester United, they wouldn't think of him like this. But, you know, you listen to someone like uh, Manuel Neuer, who says, yeah, he was my inspiration in terms of playing high off his line, and of course, he was a very good goalkeeper in the traditional sense, although I like the fact he describes the goalkeeping part of his job, the traditional goalkeeping part of his job, as saving the shots you're expected to save. <laughs> in other words, he wasn't really one for Peter Schmeichel type saves. He was solid. His quality was that he was very good with his feet as well. And then, Tom, we're, we're looking at a back three, but with a lot of quality. Who's in that? Yeah, so, I mean, you've got Frank de Boer um, with that fantastic left foot of his. Um, you know, you think about that that raking pass to Dennis Burkamp for the goal that Holland scored against Argentina um, at the 98 World Cup. Frank de Boer spelt the ball. Heel goed naar Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp neemt de bal aan. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. That was a, a big feature of Ajax's play. And I think there's a tendency sometimes to think that the football that the Ajax team played was all about, you know, intricate passing triangles. But as Michael was saying, it, it's all about space. And if you've got the ball over on one side of the pitch, where all your players are, the space is obviously going to be on the other side of the pitch. And the quickest way to get the ball there is 
to play a, a simple diagonal pass. And I don't think there was a better defender in the modern history of the game at doing that than Frank de Boer. Alongside him, you've got Danny Blint, who was this almost kind of old school libero. Um, and, and because of the way that he dovetailed with, with Rijkaard, you know, would, would often find himself stepping up into midfield when Rijkaard was dropping back. And, and his forward runs were, were quite a big feature of, of Ajax's play. And there's a goal that, that Michael mentions in the book that Ajax scored against uh, Maastricht, I think it was, in the 94-95 season. This fantastic passing move that starts with Van der Sar and Michael Reisiger combining over by the right-hand corner flag. And it ends with Danny Blind herring into the box on the right-hand side and crossing for Overmars to score. So that tells you everything about, about his quality as a, as, as a footballer. Diepte, opeens ruimte, Danny Blind. Danny Blind, alleen naar het doel van MVV. Gaat schieten? Nee, hij legt af. Overmars! Wat een treffer van Ajax hier in de Geuzelt. Applaus voor deze uitgespeelde goal. And then Michael Reisiger, probably the least technical player on that team, but at the same time someone who went on to play for Barcelona for several years. You don't you don't do that if if, if you're not comfortable with the ball at your feet. And also someone who, uh, you know, prior to breaking through at Ajax, spent a season playing in midfield at Groningen and did a, a pretty decent job by all accounts. So yeah, a very very technically capable group of defenders. Michael, in front of that back three, you've got Frank Rijkaard and uh, in a very interesting role and a very interesting player. Yeah, another one who was really interesting to research. Um, I must say, of everyone I researched in this book, he was the player who went up the most in my estimation. He was just incredible. Controlled almost every game he played. Could play in defence, could play deep midfield, could play as an attacking midfielder. Scored goals. He was uh, incredible. And also a really interesting character. Well, this is the really interesting thing about your book and the, the way it will fit in with, with readers of a certain age, by, by which I mean myself, for whom Frank Reichardt would be most famous for flobbing in Rudy Voller's hair. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we see that, and that's what he's forever remembered for. Yeah, he was kind of um, a very shy figure. He didn't like being a, a captain. He didn't like being forced to be a leader which he kind of was by virtue of being so good. Later in his career, he was you know, a manager of uh, some repute. I mean, won the Champions League with Barcelona, but then quit quite suddenly from management saying, I've been doing something for 15 years that basically I'm, you know, it doesn't suit me, which was strange. But in, in the context of this, he was a, a kind of defensive player who was an attacker, really, by, in terms of his mentality and his ability to drop between midfield and defence and just change the shape of that Ajax side was he was probably the most crucial player, I think, to the the way they played because I'm not sure anyone else could have played that role. I will mark him down, though, because as Barcelona manager, he used to wear uh, suit jackets with massive logos on the back, sort of single-breasted Formula One car. Uh, it was not a good look. Um, but we'll we'll let him off for that. In the middle, Tom, uh, Egg Davids and Clarence Seydorf, both wonderful in their own special ways, but I think my favourite thing about them is the discrepancy between their managerial careers in that Seydorf managed AC Milan and Egg Davids managed Barnet. Yeah, um, quite the And both did about as well as each other. Yeah. Think. You know, if you look at the roles that they each had, Seidorf was the more creative player, more of a passer. Davids was was the more uh, defensive-minded of the two. But this being the Dutch national team, two very, very well-rounded players. Um, and it, it would be extremely limiting to, to only describe Edgar Davids as a defensive midfielder because he was such a complete footballer. Um, and Seidorf as well. I mean, you know, an absolute joy to watch. The only man to win uh, three Champions League titles with three different clubs as well. So, yeah, two sensational footballers. I did have the pleasure of seeing David's play for Barnet actually, and it was. And you, you sort of did get a sense of the psychological impact of having this 
kind of little square lad with swimming goggles on just <laughs> barreling around. I mean, he wasn't barreling very, very quickly by the time he was at Barnet. Um, but he must have been a ferocious opponent. And, and, and Clarence Sadoff was just timelessly classy. If you could only pick one for your five-a-side team, though, who would you go for? It's a tricky one. Um, I, I used to love watching Seydorf. Um, you talk about the great players always having time on the ball. And I think one of the things that I always remember about Seydorf is the fact that he never, ever looked hurried. He did everything at his own pace. And, and despite never looking like he was moving very quickly, he could really shift when he had to. But... I mean, Davies was such a complete footballer um, and, and I think in in a way was very symbolic of that Ajax team in terms of the fact that he could do so many different roles. And when I think back to Davids at that age, the first thing I think about are those Nike adverts and there was definitely one where he was sort of the absolute central figure and you had, you know, Cantona, you probably had Ronaldo, I mean, I don't know who else you would have had, Vieri, Ian Wright, but it was Davids, this nominally defensive midfield player. I'd never seen a, a football player like with that sort of showboating ability and this is all just in, in an advert and, and he was he was the closest thing in this team to a water carrier almost, uh, which is another sign of what an extraordinary group of players it was. Coxie, which one would you put in your team? To be fair, I think Seidel was probably more suited to five-a-side in terms of his style, but I think Davids was by far the better player. And as Tom says, if you look at him later when he was at Juve and he kind of been turned into a defensive-minded, you know, you're here to support Zidane. But in this side, he was getting forward and he was, I'd say at one point, was the most complete player uh, in Europe. And of all these wonderful players, he was the one that was most fussed about in terms of where's he going to move because every single big side in Europe wanted him. Then out wide, you've got, one of the more interesting pairs of wingers, because in Mark Overmars, you've got indisputably one of the best wingers of his age. And then you've got Fanidi George, who was crap for Ipswich. <laughs> and it's like, how, how does that come together? I mean, in the book, you talk a lot about these two. You know, as I mentioned earlier, they were a real fundamental part of the Ajax philosophy in terms of it's got to be width on both sides. You've got to have someone who can go down the outside. And Fanidi George, I guess, was, you know, looking back at the videos, was probably the most underrated player in this side because he was responsible for a lot of their goals just by speeding down the outside. And this was a kind of controversial part of the side because although they were kind of encouraged to dribble and, and take the ball past fullbacks, Van Hal was very insistent that you could only really do that in a one-on-one situation. If you're up against two players, you had to switch the play. And these were, particularly Finidi, who afterwards he went to Spain and said finally I can actually play my own game and express myself because they had very limited roles and I think that was a sign of you know the fact Van Hal just wanted them to carry out a job rather than to kind of you know show any flair or creativity. Overmars a very different sort of beast though. Yeah he was incredible I mean of course he went to Arsenal and we saw what he was all about there I mean he was maybe the classic Dutch wing of this period because he was two-footed, he can play on either side. You look at him at Euro 2000, he's playing on the right and he's getting um, uh, Zambrotta sent off in that semi-final. And yeah, if, if Van Gaal had two overmarses, then he would have filled them both, one on either flank. Tom, I don't want to worry you, but under the desk, I'm preparing to rub my thighs appreciatively as I say, how good was Yari Lippmann? Oh, um... oh. Absolutely sensational footballer. There was a clip uh, that emerged on Twitter a little while ago of Wayne Rooney being asked which footballer he had taken the most inspiration from when he was, you know, a young lad growing up in Liverpool in the in the nineties. I think in terms of the way I play, I used to watch a lot of Yari Lippmann um, when I was younger. Um, I used to love the way he played, um, the way he created goals, scored goals, and 
you know, the way he was always on the ball and he always seemed to have time. So that's something which I, I watched a lot of when I was younger and tried to really, you know, copy him really and, and play the way he does. I think Rooney saw in Lippmann a player who could play in that number 10 role and run the game, but at the same time be a penalty box player. And I think that was a really striking thing about Lippmann was that he was afforded quite a lot of freedom in this team compared to some of Ajax's other attacking players. But despite that, he spent an awful lot of time in the penalty area. I mean, he was their top scorer in all competitions in that 94-95 season. Wonderful timing and a real sort of combination of elegance and power. Even though he was, he was you know, an outsider, he'd come from Finland, he looked like an Ajax player, he had that technical quality, um, but there was a real explosiveness to his finishing. Uh, he was someone who finished equally well with both feet. Um, he timed his volleys exceptionally well. I'm sure we've all seen that graph of the popularity of Yari as uh, a boy's name <laughs> in the Netherlands, which is basically just a flat line from 1750 <laughs> until you know 1994, 95, and suddenly there's a, there's a spike. And I suppose the one great pity about Lippmann was that he never reproduced that Ajax form after he left the club. I mean, he stayed at Ajax until 99. We tend to think about this team just suddenly disappearing. He he was there for another four years after that Champions League win, but whether it was at Liverpool, whether it was at Barcelona, you know, he was someone who suffered terribly from injuries and, and from managers never really trusting him in the way that Van Gaal did, but he's someone who is absolutely adored by Ajax fans. And um, I know there's a, a quote from, from Frank Rijkaard uh, in Michael's book where he says that, you know, Dennis Burke was a wonderful number 10 but the best number 10 we had was Yari Lippmann which I think sums up how good he was There were flashes of it at Liverpool weren't there? Just flashes Yeah I mean if you look at um, what the you know his teammates say about him particularly Jeremy Carragher says yeah that's the player we needed for Lost you know for the five years before that and he kind of tried to link the play of course he suffered a lot from injuries and just general fitness problems he looked you know, pretty immobile really by that point, but was still a wonderful player. Nice thing about Lippmann is he played for Finland, I think scored for Finland in four different decades because his uh, career was from 89 to 2010. Oh, well played. So 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s. Nice. Up front, even more options. You've got Ronald De Boer, you've got Patrick Cliver, and you've got Carnu as well. Now, Carnu again, in my head, is a tired old man at Portsmouth. Um, and then you go back and you watch clips of him at Ajax and he's, oh, he's much more fun. Yeah, there's three really good options. I mean, Ronald De Boer, I always think of as a midfielder, but going back and watching the videos, he played up front as the number nine, sometimes played on the left wing. Um, and then they had two great options. I mean, Clivert was so quick. He was his, just his, not just necessarily him sprinting, but his feet were so fast when he got the ball. He was a really, really exciting player. And Kanu, who was... Um, just incredibly skillful and uh, you know we, we associate him later in his career with almost being a permanent plan b for arsenal coming off the bench and holding up the ball but again he was someone who could go in behind and uh yeah van Hal used those three very well and of course it was uh the fact that they had such strength and depth that won them that final in 95 against milan because it was clive who came off the bench and uh, received a pass from Rijkaard who was storming through midfield and finished and that was uh, you know the biggest goal of the season for this team. Of course it, there's a sort of bittersweet feeling of this team because it gets torn apart so quickly afterwards, um, which kind of tends to be an Ajax thing. Tom, talk me through the departures. 
Yeah, I mean, the tendency is to think that this team was was ripped apart immediately after that season. Um, Clarence Seedorf left on a Bosman the summer of 95 and, and Rijkaard retired. Uh, apart from that, the rest of the team stayed together and they reached the following season's Champions League final. But it's then that, that everyone basically you know disappears. Uh, David's goes to Milan uh, with Reisiger and uh, Patrick Kluivert a year later. The De Boer twins go off to Barcelona, where Kluivert later joins them. Overmars goes to Arsenal. And it meant that by the time we get to the year 2000, there's not a single survivor left from that squad. And Ajax find themselves in the doldrums, really. And it's not until the last two, three years that they return to prominence on, on the European stage. I mean, there have been runs to the Champions League knockout phases in between, but certainly, you know, between that 95-96 golden period and the current team, there's not really been all that much to write home about. I thought that what we had a a couple of years ago, you know, when they were beaten in the Europa League final by Manchester United and then uh, David Klassen went and the manager went and Davison Sanchez went and I thought, oh God, that's as close as they're ever going to get nowadays. That's modern football. There'll never be another Ajax story. And then we kind of have one now. It would have been nicer if they got all the way to the final, but to get so close to the final. Michael, would you say that that generation of Ajax players is kind of following the tradition of the club? Yeah, definitely. I think you can see that from, uh, you know, Matthias Delic's uh, speech on stage at the Turtle Celebrations when he's saying, you know, we're following, you know, what Cruyff wanted. We have a lot of scene where the great above us, what he wants. And what he, what he from us verwachtte. And we hebben het met z'n allen gedaan. Ervaren spelers, jeugdspelers, allemaal. En de supporters. You know, as I mentioned before, I think Van Hal was broadly continuing with that playing philosophy, even if they had different styles of management. And there's some players, I mean, particularly Frankie de Jong, who is an exceptional footballer. I mean, the like of which I don't think I've seen for a very long time in European football. And he reminds me very much of Rijkaard in, in terms of the role he plays. Half midfielder, half defender. And that's kind of what the Dutch have always seen defenders as. You're not just there to defend, you're there to create. And we've come to take that for granted in the modern era with, you know, defenders being expected to be good on the ball. But Blind and Rijkaard, compare them to the kind of defenders you saw for Serie A teams at the the time. And it's a completely different world. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Before we go, a reminder that Michael's book, Zonal Marking, The Making of Modern European Football, is out already. Came out May 30th. It's on hardback. It's an audio book. It's an e-book. Get all over it right now. And remember to join us next time because we've got more of these lined up. We're going to be joined by James Horncastle. We're going to be looking at Juventus. Juventus.